Welcome, guys. My name is JD. I am the Crosstalk Pastor here at Cypress Creek Church. Any Thursday that we get to gather is a good Thursday. This one is especially good. It's especially good because we have the opportunity to gather here on campus, to be amongst our peers, to be in the middle of the university, able to proclaim the Word of God, and that is a good day. That is a really good day, and I am super excited to be with you guys uh, we are in the midst of a series called The Five Solas, um, the midst of the series called The Five Solas, and The Five Solas are really important for us as believers to understand because they are the basis for what our faith is made up on. And in understanding what our faith is made up on, it gives us a firm foundation to walk with confidence into a world where we are bombarded with a lot of different ideas of who we are, with a lot of different opinions of who we are, with a lot of different versions of truth. And so it's into this space that the five solas really allow us to walk with confidence. And we walk with confidence because we're able to look back into our history and to see what are the essential things that the Christian faith is made up upon. And in looking back in history, we look, we land upon a guy named Martin Luther. And a guy named Martin Luther nailed 90, a list of 95 things to the door of the Wittenberg church. And in nailing those 95 things to the door of the Wittenberg Church, he provided a great corrective for the church. He provided a great corrective, and what it did was it gave us the opportunity to reflect and to reevaluate and to say, what does it mean to follow Jesus Christ? And in doing so, he started what we call today as the Reformation. We celebrated last Saturday the anniversary of the Reformation. And out of these 95 theses came five distinctives or five themes that define what it means to follow Jesus today. Those are the five solas. That is scripture alone, grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, and to the glory of God alone. And these five solas are the basis for what we believe as followers of Jesus Christ, no matter the denominational or, denominational or church background that we grew up in. And so the critical for us to understand as we walk forward into the future. And two weeks ago, we talked about Scripture. We talked about how Scripture alone is our authority for understanding God's work in the world. And if we don't grasp that key concept of the authority of Scripture, everything else that follows does not matter. It's all built upon the authority of Scripture, not what tradition tells us, not what leaders tell us, but Scripture alone. And so we go to God's Word and we see in God's Word that grace is God's attitude towards us. That's what we talked about last week. And more specifically, we talked about how grace is given in spite of ourselves, not because of ourselves. In other words, grace is given in spite of the things we do, not because of the things we do. We talked about the parable of the prodigal son. And in the parable of the prodigal son, if you guys don't remember, the son asks for his inheritance. He goes off to a foreign land. He wastes all of the money on wild living and is slapping pigs and says, the servants in my father's house have it better than me. And so he starts to walk home. And he's still on his way home. He's saying to himself, rehearsing these lines, God, I am no, uh, father, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants servants. 
And it's in that we, that we see the most important aspect of this story, which is the reaction of the father. Because when the son gets to the house, the father doesn't even let him get the lines out of his mouth before celebrating his return, before celebrating his return. And in celebrating his return, you see that he says, for my son was lost, but now he is found. He was dead, but now he is alive. And it's in that we understand that God's attitude towards us is one of pursuit, that God is always chasing us, that God is always saying yes to us. And we see that the parable of the prodigal son is in a series of three parables of the lost coin, of the lost sheep, and then of the lost son. And it's in that space that we understand this, this verse in Ephesians. It's kind of a hallmark of the Christian faith. It says in Ephesians 2, chapter, uh, Ephesians 2, verse 8, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of yourselves. It is a gift from God, not by works, so that no man may boast. And through these parables, we see the picture being painted in Ephesians of a God that is drastically different than maybe some of us grew up with. This angry, condemnatory God waiting, standing up there with lightning bolts to smite you because of your sin. And yet we see into this that we see a gracious God, a God that is saying yes to us even when we turn and we walk away. And as Martin Luther began to read, he began to understand God's attitude towards us in a remarkable way, in a way that he had never heard before. And when we open the Bible and allow scripture to become the authority for our lives, we begin to see grace written on every page. And I think we, as a church today, oftentimes have a misunderstanding of grace. What is, uh, somebody give me, it's like a two-word definition of grace. It's like kind of the Sunday school answer for grace. What is grace? Yeah, unmerited favor. Thank you. Unmerited favor, which we all grew up with and we think that we have an understanding of. And I got to tell you guys, when I was in college, I was a sophomore in college, and I was stuck in this cycle of behavior, this cycle of sin, and over and over and over again, I would sin, I would say, I'm so sorry, God, and I would, I would seek to like make amends. And then all of a sudden, I would find myself back in the exact same sin, struggling again, and I finally got to the point where I went to my pastor, I said, what is wrong with me? What is wrong with me that I cannot understand, that I cannot comprehend, that I can't move forward understanding God's grace? And he said, well, JD, it's because you have a misunderstanding of grace. Grace is not enabling. It's not enabling behaviors, destructive behaviors. But when we come into the presence of God and we experience his grace, this unmerited favor, it always moves us towards change. It always moves us towards change. And if grace doesn't change the way that we live, then we are shortchanging the death of Christ on the cross in a very dramatic way. When we allow the grace we have received to change the way we live, it's simply called faith. You see, the nature of sin is not all of this bad stuff that we do, that we accumulate. It's simply the answer, no. It's simply the answer, no. When God comes to us and says, yes, we simply say no and we turn and we walk in the other direction. And it's this simple thing. It's in this space that we understand the grace of God, and we respond to it. All it is is simply turning back to God and saying yes to him. 
God, what you want for me, I want for me. God, what you have for me, I want for me. And that is the essence of faith. It's just simply saying yes to a God who has said yes to you for your entire life. Hebrews 11 verse 1 says that faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. You know, I I started climbing a long time ago. Um, Kind of probably coming up on almost eight or nine years I started climbing. And I dabbled in all sorts of different like styles of climbing from very mundane, easy things to, to things that are kind of bold and scary. And all of them require faith. If your feet leave the ground, you, it requires faith. It requires faith that you will perform the way that you want to. It requires faith that the gear is going to work the way that the gear is supposed to. And most importantly is maybe you have faith that the guy who's supposed to catch you is actually going to catch you. And so you go through these, these styles of climbing and generally people try things and then they land on one that's their favorite. But there's one style that stands out and it's called trad climbing. It's traditional climbing. And trad climbing is for the bold. Trad climbing is for the bold and it's really the most scary style of climbing because you see in trad climbing, you're placing your own protection in the rock as you go up. And so there's nothing in the rock, and what you're doing is you're placing these pieces of mechanical gear inside of a crack in the rock and hoping that it will hold you. And really what it is, is a, it's a hope. It's a faith that it will hold you, and you can watch all the videos on YouTube that it does work. But the thing about it is when you go and you trad climb, when you trad climb, you have to place the gear yourself. And so the gear might hold you, but you have to trust your ability to put it in a wall in the way that is actually going to protect you. And when you place that in the wall and then you climb above this piece, you have to deal with the risk that's involved that if you fall on it and you did a bad job, you're kind of in deep doo-doo. Like that, that piece can rip right out of the wall and, no, and the thing that you thought was there to protect you is gone. And so I went on a climbing trip. Um, oh, when was it? It was in the fall of 2017. I took this real long, like nine or 10 day climbing trip to Red Rock Canyon right outside of Las Vegas. And a buddy of mine named Adam, he and I went up and we were gonna do this thousand foot climb. Gonna do a thousand feet in a day, it was gonna be really, really cool. And we get to the point that we're about 700 feet off the ground. And my buddy Adam has climbed up above me and I'm following him up and there's this cool corner. And so you climb around the corner and it's this really exposed out in the middle of space. And it's at this point in time that like my buddy Adam pokes his head over the top. It's kind of on a ledge and he goes, hey, don't fall. I was like, okay. So I keep climbing. Like now I'm kind of scared. I wasn't scared before. And so I get up to him and what I saw was that this anchor was terrible. And that really, truly, if I had fallen on the anchor, what had probably happened is those pieces would have ripped out of the wall and both of us probably would have died. And that's sort of this crazy amount of faith, right? It's this crazy amount of faith that what you're going to do, you've mitigated the risk to the point that it's, that it's acceptable for you. We do a lot of things instinctively by faith in our life. When you guys walked in here today, you didn't look at the chair and to like evaluate whether it was going to hold your weight to see if it had like structural integrity or anything like that. What you did is you said, I've sat in a chair before. That chair looks fine. You have the background knowledge. You have the experience. And you just walked in and sat down. 
and you didn't think twice about it, right? <clears throat> and the same thing is true in climbing. If I didn't have faith in the gear, I would never leave the ground. I would never go climbing. And the biggest fall I've ever taken was like this 40-foot screamer in New Mexico. And so I fell this like full, like 40-foot length of rope. And I, really, I just pitched off the top of this climb. It was super easy, and I just blew the last hold and then ended up like screaming all the way down and got to the bottom was like, oh my gosh, what happened? It was like long enough that I still had time to think about the fact that I was still falling while I was in the air. It was this really terrible thing. But I knew at that point, I, there was not a moment's hesitation for me. I just climbed. I just did it. And so what happened was I had been doing this for long enough that it didn't require me like measuring risk. It didn't require me to go up and to make sure that everything looked right, that it all felt right. I just went and did it. And that's what happens over time, right? We go up and like in climbing, you sit on a piece of gear and you're like, oh, that held me. And then you take like a small controlled fall and then you get bigger and bigger as time goes on. And this experience builds to the point that when I got to that point where it was like, well, this is the do or die moment. I was like, oh, no fear. I'm just going to go for it. And for some reason for us, those things are, are way, way easier for us. And I use a dramatic example like climbing because those things are easier for us to trust with far smaller things than the living God who sent his son to die for us on a cross. And what we do really in those moments is we fail to recognize God's character. We've been given the book, these books of the Bible and we look in these and we see stories of time after time after time of God's faithfulness, of God's love, of God's grace, of God's mercy. And yet when it push comes to shove, we often say, I can do these things on my own. I want to add with it, add to it with this God stuff, but I want to do things on my own. We refuse to put all of our life in his hands. And here's what I realized. We, we know, we know this chair. And this sounds dumb. We know this chair, but we don't know God. We know the chair here is going to hold us, and so we trust it and we put our faith in it, but we don't know God. We are these half-hearted creatures fooling around, hoping that God is who he says he is without fully believing that we can trust him with everything that we are. And the early believers in the New Testament struggled with the same sort of thing. Paul actually addresses it in the book of Galatians. And so we're going to pick it up here in, in chapter 2. And just to set the stage here, Paul's returned to Jerusalem after 14 years to meet with the disciples. And he goes and he meets with the disciples. And he's there to tell them about his ministry to the Gentiles, about all of the things that God has done through him and to really continue to get a blessing to, to do his ministry. And they give him this blessing, and they only give him one thing, and they say, remember your ministry to the poor, which is a really unique, like, remarkable thing to look at. Remember your ministry to the poor. And then we have no more details of that, and it kind of end scene switches to a new one, and we see this scene here where Peter is eating with Gentiles. It, just, it doesn't give us anything more than that. So we just know that Peter is eating with these Gentiles. And when these Jewish believers show up from James, Peter withdraws himself from the company of Gentiles. So he's eating, everything is fine. And then when these 
Jewish believers show up, he just like steps away from the table and refuses to, to, to eat with the Gentiles or to fellowship with the Gentiles anymore. And so what we see here is a, is a conflict between Paul and Peter. And really what it is, it's Paul rebuking Peter. And the important thing for us to understand here is that Paul viewed the sharing of meals between Gentiles and Jewish believers as a critical indication of the Gentiles' place in the people of God. That by fellowshipping together, by, by breaking bread together, the Gentiles were now entered into the people of God with the Jewish people and were able to benefit and partake in everything that the Jewish believers had. That the distinction between Jew and Gentile was gone based on this doctrine of justification by faith. He goes on in Galatians chapter 3, and he, and he furthers this point, and he says, There is neither Jew nor Gentile, nor slave nor free, nor is there male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And by Peter withdrawing from the fellowship with the Gentile believers on the basis of the Jewish law, the Jewish believers are in effect requiring the Gentiles to meet them on the basis of their Jewish faith, right? That Christ's death on the cross is not enough, but you also have to do everything required by the Jewish law in order for you to, to be with us, to be on the same level, to fellowship with us, to share life together. And for Paul, this is to require this of the Gentiles is to abandon the grace of God that is a fundamental hallmark of the gospel. And Paul really expounds on this for the rest of the chapter and really the rest of the letter. But we're going to read here Galatians chapter 2, 15 to 21 tonight. And it says, We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Now we know Paul is talking about himself and the Jewish believers when he's saying this, right? And I, and I read all of this, and really what you get the picture of when you read all of the resources around this passage is that Paul right here is setting a trap. He's saying, all of us, the Jewish believers, and those Gentile sinners, he's intentionally creating distance here. He's saying, the Jews are good and the Gentile sinners are over there. And he says here, and, he, and then he goes, and it, this is all of the correction here. Yet, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Paul's concern in this verse is especially with the negative point that Christian Jews like Paul and Peter recognize. They cannot be justified in terms of the law and its demands on a person. And it's really big that we know that none of the parties here, Paul, Peter, the Jewish believers, the Galatians, were questioning Christ's need for death on the cross for their justification. But what he's really addressing was the dispute of works of the law that must be added on to Christ's sacrifice to be saved. And Paul says that we are justified by faith. And that's important for us to understand. Justification is one of those really dead ringer theological words that we need to understand. And when a discussion is about justification, then there's no time to drag it in the law. 
When we discuss justification, we ought to speak of faith in Christ alone and the benefit that has brought us by his atoning work on the cross. That it's by faith alone that we come into relationship with God. You see, faith is a central part of what it means to be a follower of God. It's maybe the most central part. The key concept here is to understand this word justification, and justification directly deals with our standing with God. And what it means is that when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, we are justified right then and there, which means that we can stand before a holy God as righteous and blameless in his sight. We are counted as and viewed as righteous and blameless in God's sight. That is the essence of justification. That it's this right here in the atoning work of Jesus that we see that. And what should not be overlooked, however, is the real force of Paul's argument in this verse and really in the rest of the chapter. Douglas Moo, who is a famous scholar on Pauline texts, states that Paul is not arguing that Gentiles should be included with the Jews in the people of God. He is arguing, rather, that Jews should be included with Gentiles in the mass of ordinary, sinful humanity. And that it's not elevating someone else to our level, but it's us understanding that we are down here on the same level with everyone else. Jews are sinners just like the Gentiles with the radical implication that follows here. The Jewish believers' obedience to the covenantal law cannot put them right with God. It has no ability to save them. Only a total reliance on Christ is sufficient. Verse 17 says, But if in our endeavor to be justified with Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. In this way, the law is a really good thing. We look at the words of Jesus. He said that he did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Looking in the mirror of the law allows us to understand our dire need for grace. That is only in light of the law that we can see how sinful and how messed up and how broken we actually are as people. And so what constitutes us as sinners is not rejecting the law, it's actually rebuilding it. Through Christ's sacrifice, we have been freed from the law, and yet we cannot help but rebuild it in our lives. And here's what I mean by that. The people to whom Paul was responding were not legalists in the sense that they were requiring works of the law to be saved. They were nomists. And nomists are people who insisted that faith in Christ had to be combined with works for ultimate salvation. That it was faith plus works that put us into right relationship with God. And so here Paul is correcting these people, saying that you have died to the law, so don't go back to it. Don't place yourself under the burden of the law anymore. The life you live, you live to God. And he furthers this point in verse 20 when he says, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God 
who loved me and gave himself up for me. The language of death, particularly since Paul follows it with reference to life, makes clear how radical the break is. It is like dying and being reborn. And as Paul refers in this text to being crucified with Christ, it shows that the Christian's death and now life represents Christ's death and now life. We see this language in Romans chapter six where it says that for we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. I no longer, Paul's words that I no longer live means that the old me, the me enslaved to the sin and the law has been done away with and it's been replaced by a new me whose existence is determined by Christ's sacrifice alone. Paul speaks of Christ as living in believers, which shows us that the power to live this life free from sin is dependent upon a vital relationship with the Holy Spirit. And that it's only by the work of the Holy Spirit that dominates the believer's life in all aspects that we can live free from placing ourselves under the burden of the law. Verse 21 says, I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Then Christ died for no purpose. And that's what Martin Luther realized in reading the scriptures and understanding the grace that was offered to him. For it is by faith alone that we come into relationship with God. Not faith plus works or plus anything else, but faith and faith alone. In relying upon works, we reject the grace of God in Christ's work on the cross. John Calvin, in reading this passage, commented, for if we do not renounce all other hopes and embrace Christ alone, we reject the grace of God, which means that I don't have to keep my head above water, doggy paddling, trying to do enough right things to be on the right side of the line so that when I die, I can get into heaven. There's freedom. The death that Christ died, he died once for all. We so often say, I will trust God if he answers my prayers the way that I want him to answer them. I will trust God if he does, if he comes through in the ways that I have predetermined that he should. I will trust God for the, these specific things in my life, but these other ones I hold for myself because in these areas, I only trust myself, my own ability to do and to create and to accomplish. And what happens is we begin to struggle so mightily under this weight of self-imposed expectations that we can't keep our head above water. It isn't our actions that earn us forgiveness. It isn't about what we bring to the table, our accomplishments, our successes, because it will never be enough. But rather, it is by faith alone. Can we do anything to save ourselves or to make ourselves right with God? No. It's the simple answer. We can only trust in his work. And a free gift has been handed to us, and it's our choice. It is our choice whether we reject that gift and walk away 
or we choose to reach out and take it and live in freedom. And live in freedom. To have faith in Jesus is to reject all other ways of salvation, plain and simple. We cannot trust in Jesus and anything else. It doesn't work that way. Acts chapter 4 tells us that salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. And I got to tell you guys, I struggled with this for a really long time. Probably all the way through college. And it was really hard for me to make sense of this passage and what it meant to live my life in dependence upon faith in Christ. And so I saw it lived out. I saw it lived out in this really cool way. I worked for, um, for a company where I got to guide backpacking trips for, for halfway houses for men. And if you guys don't know what a halfway house is, a halfway house is, is a place where men who are in recovery from, from drug and alcohol addiction can go and they can get sober and they can live in community. And so it was my great privilege, and I mean privilege, that I got to take these guys out for four or five days at a time, and we would always do these brutal winter camping trips, like backpacking trips. And so we would go out and we would freeze our butts off and we would walk around the woods for a while, and then somehow miraculously it always led to great conversation. And so there's one night that we're sitting um, by the fire, it's snowing like crazy. We got this huge fire going, and I'm like, guys, it's time to go to bed. Just get in the tents, let's go to bed, we just need to call it quits. I'm cold. Like I'm wet and I'm cold and I'm tired. We're trying to, we're getting to like all of the steps where it's like, it's just time to be done. And they refused to go to bed until they had an AA meeting. Until they had an AA meeting. And they had to have it every night. That's what they told me. They had to have their AA meeting every night. And if you guys don't know what an AA is, it's, it's Alcoholics Anonymous. And it's, and it's a 12-step program. And the 12 steps offer a process and a path to free a person from a specific sin. In their case, it's alcoholism that drains them of energy and life as well as offering a path to free a person for right relationship with themselves, with others, and with God. The 12 steps were developed by a believer. And that process, and that process, as I watched it play out, as I got to participate in these AA meetings, had extraordinary impact in these men's lives. And then I got home and I realized that I was actually the person who was the most changed by being a part of it. And there are four things that I saw on that trip, four things that I, that I got to experience through these AA meetings that have radically changed my life. And the first one is that they admit their identity. When you walk into an AA meeting, they say, hi, my name is JD and I'm an alcoholic. Or, hi, my name is JD and I'm an alcoholic and an addict. They're not walking in under these false pretenses trying to be good or trying to be enough or to prove that they, that they have a spot to belong there. They say, no, they admit their need. And the same is true for us as believers. When I walk into relationship with God, when I put my faith in Jesus, I have to say, hi, I'm JD, and I am a sinner. By admitting my identity as a sinner, I recognize my need for a savior. I put myself in a position by faith to accept the grace of God that is given to me. 
The second thing was community and accountability. The Lord created us to be in relationship with others. He didn't create us to be alone. And it's in relationship that we see ourselves flourish, that we see ourselves grow and to become the people of God that God created us to be. And what I saw in that group was a group of men who just supported one another no matter what. That there wasn't judgment, there wasn't condemnation, but there was support and acceptance. And I saw these men who are struggling with their own brokenness, with their own addiction, with their own depravity, and people loving them and caring for them, and walking beside them no matter whether they were a million days clean or a half a day clean. And I saw in story after story the role of the sponsor, and everybody in AA gets a sponsor, and it's literally just a person who helps walk them through the 12 steps. And I recognized that, I said, my gosh, they have figured out the essence of discipleship, of supporting one another, of caring one another, of walking through the worst things of life together without judgment or condemnation. And so I would urge you guys, go to a community group. Go to a community group. Be in a discipleship or a mentorship relationship. Have an accountability partner. You weren't created to do this alone. You're created to be in relationship with others. Others who are walking towards the same thing, who are struggling with the same things, who can relate, and they can love you in, in your own brokenness. The third thing I saw was confession and forgiveness. Confession and seeking forgiveness. Steps 8 to 10 in the 12 steps are all about confession of sin and seeking forgiveness, making amends for wrongs. And what I saw was these men confessing their mistakes and understanding the repercussions of their actions on their families, on their wives, on their sons, on their daughters, on their parents, on their friends, and really understanding their own sinfulness, their brokenness, their, the things that they have done that have harmed the people around them. When we confess and we seek forgiveness, we're announcing our need for Jesus in our life. We're not existing under a false pretense that we have it all together, that we are perfect people, that I always care for Johnny well, that I always say the right thing to Johnny, that I always show up when Johnny needs me. It's the confession that, man, I have not always said the right thing. I've hurt you with my words. I've hurt you with my actions. And in those places, I need forgiveness. We are actively placing our faith in Jesus alone for salvation when we confess. And the last thing is, they focus on one day at a time. They understand that faith and healing takes place on a moment-by-moment -moment basis. If they focus on a year from now, or two years from now, or five years from now, they're going to use today. And they have to say, I am not going to drink now. And I'm not going to drink in an hour. And I'm not going to drink today. 
And what that is, is it's the inviting of the Holy Spirit in and allowing him to change us from the inside out. Because I'm tempted with the sins of my past every day. I'm tempted to try to fix, to achieve, and to solve every problem that's put in front of me without recognizing God's sovereignty in those things, without recognizing God's faithfulness, without recognizing God's work in all of those areas of, the li of my life. The only way I'm able to fully place my trust in Jesus is to invite the Holy Spirit in to change my desires on a moment-by-moment -moment basis, to correct my heart on a moment-by-moment -moment basis. Jesus says to us, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It is only by placing our faith in Christ, one day at a time, one moment at a time, that we can find rest in Jesus' presence that we can find rest for our souls, that we can step off the hamster wheel of everyday life of trying to do enough, to be enough, to achieve enough, that we are worthy. And we see that in Christ alone. Let me pray for us. God, Father, we praise you for your grace, Lord. We praise you for, for Jesus, for your sacrifice on the cross to die for each and every one of us, God. Father, we recognize that in that sacrifice, Lord, that we are not worthy, and yet you chose to do it anyway, God. And Father, we, we look at our own lives, and we look at our own brokenness, and we understand, God, that we cannot do enough on our own, that we cannot be enough on our own. And so, Jesus, we put it all on you, God. We place our faith in you, and we allow you to bear the burden of all of it, God. And we praise you, Jesus, that we can find rest in your presence, God. We pray this all in your name.